Ecclesiastes chapter 5. You can read with me here. We're going to read verses 18 through verse 20. It says, Behold, I, or sorry, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment and all the toil with which one toils under the sun. The few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Brethren, let's pray one more time. Father, we need your help. Oh God, we need your help. That you would make us those who our lives are not occupied by things that would take our mind off you, but we would be occupied with you and thereby be occupied with joy. Oh God, be a help to your people. And let those who know you not Lord, open their eyes to the glory of Jesus Christ that what they chase after is little trinkets on the side of the road. They know not the majesty of Christ. Open their eyes, O oh God. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, brethren. You'll have to forgive me if I start sounding very stuffy. Um, my allergies are pretty bad. So, here's the deal. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, these last couple verses of this chapter. Honestly, I don't, uh, I don't know how much I have for you tonight, but I have one thing I want you to grasp. Uh, this is something I have. I've grappled with this over the last five or six days. Actually, probably more than that. Um, just to give you a little idea of why we're even at this text. Um, back when we were still going through the little short series we did on the essentials of the gospel, we talked about justification by faith alone. We talked about how we are not saved by works. We talked about the peace that we have with God, all of these things that were very important in regards to the gospel. And what Manny covered there at the very end of that was Romans chapter 5. And, and, and there were a lot of other things there in Romans 5 other than the peace. But the peace that, that we have with God was one of the effects of the gospel, but there were a lot more there. And, and one of them was this idea of the Christian now has a heart that rejoices. And I remember seeing that and I thought, man, I want to talk about that. I, I want to, to speak a little bit about just the, the blessing and the glory of Christian joy, how it is that we can actually constantly rejoice. And you get this idea through Scripture. It's, like, it's unbelievable. It's almost like every passage that it comes up, 
It's so often in regards to even suffering. Not just that you rejoice, but brethren, that you rejoice even though you're being persecuted. And that is something that is so distinct in Christianity. There is a sense of joy there that you can't find anywhere else. So that was in the back of my mind. I had that there for a while, and I've been sitting on that, but I didn't really know how to attack it. And then we had a number of of people that had questions about Ecclesiastes. What in the world is happening in this book? And if you've read through it, you've probably found that it can be confusing at points. It can be difficult to interpret at points. And so I was drawn again to my studies in Ecclesiastes, really working through it, really digging into it. And as I worked my way through here, I was hit by as Aaron would say last week, no little blow to, to my heart. Um, time and time again, it was as though this book was reiterating to me that there is, there is a joy, but it's a counterfeit joy. It's one that the world would want you to have or that the devil would want you to have or that your own flesh would want you to have. And then there's a real joy. One that's not rooted in the flesh or sin, but one that is rooted in God Himself. And I, I was working through this text and it just kept coming back and kept coming back and kept coming back. That, that what I want is for you to see that there is the fleeting joy that you might think you could grasp in this life, but it will be gone. But there is a real joy that what I hope, brethren, is that you would see here what he says in verse 20. That you would not remember much the days of your life in regards to the toils and the difficulties and, and all of the things that, that come into this life, but that God would keep you occupied with joy in your heart. And a real one, not the counterfeit one. And so as I came to this particular verse, it was like it just hit me like a train. And I couldn't get away from it. It was, it was all the way through. It was starting in verse 1 all the way through, going through the whole book. But I kept coming back to this verse. And so I figured uh, as things sort of came together, as the week uh, moved closer, this is, this is the passage the Lord put on my heart. So what I want to do is do two things. I want to first... Just sort of in broad strokes, paint for you the picture of what is the counterfeit joy that is laid out before you. And brethren, you know this, it's at the fingertips. The flesh, the devil himself, the world wants to lay this on a platter for you to have. And if you've, if, if you've ever read it in, in Pilgrim's Progress, as they're making their way there, right on the side is Vanity Fair. And they actually have to make their way through it. they got to go through Vanity Fair. They cannot get to the celestial city unless they go through it. And in Vanity Fair, what do they have? All kinds of stuff that's going to lure these people away. And this, brethren, is what we see in Ecclesiastes. So I want you to see, first of all, the, the faultiness of this counterfeit joy. But then I want you to see on the other side the glories that are in Jesus Christ, that there is a real joy offered there. That if those things would be left aside, you would be able to grasp the majesty of Jesus Christ and all of that would be nothing. It would be absolutely nothing. You know, the, the, I, I was thinking about maybe we would sing it this week, but 
didn't really come to my mind until earlier today, but that hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. You know the words, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of this earth will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Brethren, that's what we want. That's what we need. So, what, what I think is helpful though, before we start, is for you to get sort of a, a little bit of a grasp of what is happening in Ecclesiastes. So, turn with me to, to chapter 1 briefly, because getting the structure here, I think, is going to be a little bit helpful. Uh, not only for you and your own studies, but just sort of looking at it all the way across what we're going to do here. But here's, here's kind of what you have. You have a, an author and a preacher, and they may be the same person, um, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. But you, you have an author who introduces us to a preacher in verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then from verse 2 all the way through chapter 12, you can go over there real quick, through chapter 12, all the way up to verse 9, we hear the words of the preacher. So in verse 1, we, we're introduced to whoever this preacher is, probably Solomon. There are other guesses, but they just don't really seem to fit. The, the book doesn't say who it is, but Solomon seems to be the most likely candidate. But we're introduced to this preacher, we hear the words of the preacher, and then in chapter 12, verse 9, the author comes back again, to give us a summation of what was heard, what the preacher has said. And so all the way through here, here's what you get. The preacher is intent upon teaching us that life is something that is fleeting. Look at, look at verse 2. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, I assume to some degree you're familiar with this sort of structure. We, we see in Scripture other areas, holy of holies. Uh, we see in an, an, the next book, well, some Bibles it's called Song of Solomon, but in some it's called the Song of Songs. The idea is that this is the song of all songs, or, or this is the holy of all holies. And so here the preacher is saying, the vanity of all vanities. But here's the deal. I don't think that that word necessarily grasped what the preacher is actually trying to say. Because if you're, if you're anything like me, when you hear vanity, you probably think meaningless or uselessness is, is of no value. It's just vain. It's, it's pointless. But that's really not what's being intended here. The word is actually meant to portray something else. So what I want you to do is just is think for a minute. Imagine yourself. I know we don't have a ton of these, but in the winter here, it can get pretty cold. So imagine early in the morning, you're going outside in the winter, and you, as you exhale, you can actually see your breath as it comes out of your mouth, as those water molecules clump together like a, a cloud or a fog or something. And it's there. It seemingly is almost even as solid and rigid as the car that's in front of you. It's there. But then in a split second, it's gone. It's dissipated. It doesn't exist anymore. 
And that's the word that's being used here. The word is actually translated in a lot of places as breath. So if you want to look at it, you can go to Psalm 78, and you'll see how this is used. Psalm chapter 78, verses 32 and 33. Now this is in reference to the Israel. What's happening here is it's being spoken about of when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt and they were in the wilderness and they're wandering there. And all the stuff that God did for them. And in verse 32 it says, In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite His wonders, they did not believe. So He made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. It's the same word. And in a lot of places, you get the same kind of translation made. And even in Ecclesiastes, I think, the preacher defines for us what he means by vanity. So go to chapter 6 and look with me at verse 12. <clears throat> he says, For who knows what is good for man while he lives? The few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow. So you get the idea. The vanity is the fact that it's fleeting. It's passing. It's there and then it's gone. It doesn't remain. It doesn't abide. And that's what's being dealt with. The preacher is saying, this doesn't abide. It doesn't remain. And you are a fool to bank on that which doesn't remain. You are acting foolishly to rest in that which will be gone. So all through this book, he's painting that picture for us. This is vanity. It's foolishness. It's fleeting. It's going away. And then you get all the way to the end. In chapter 12. And the writer comes back in. And he says in verse 9, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So what we have is a summation of all that the preacher has said, which ends on this note. It is your greatest duty to submit yourself to God. That is the end of the matter. 
It, what is most important is not the fleeting pleasures of life, but it is fearing God and worshiping Him. That is of greatest importance. And I would argue that is of greatest, is where your greatest joy will be found. And as I wrestled with this passage over the last couple of days, brethren, I'll be honest with you. One thing that is most difficult above all other things is when you find yourself in a position like this to preach something that you come to recognize that you're not so sure whether or not you have it in your own life. That is not an easy thing to do. And I have been increasingly convinced that what I need in my life is to be more and more occupied with joy in my heart. And you may say, well, wait a second. You're not supposed to be occupied with joy. You're supposed to be occupied with Christ. And I would say, but my friend, to be occupied with Christ is to be occupied with joy. If it's real joy, not a fake one, not a fleeting one. And so when I, as I bring this to you, I, I fully recognize that my own difficulty to do this constantly on a daily basis, brethren, to be occupied with that, is a difficult thing to do. But nevertheless, it is our calling. So turn with me to chapter 2. I just want to quick, quick, quickly walk through some of this. Because, again, what I want you to see, and it's impossible to do all of it, but I think in chapter 2, in, in the beginning parts of that chapter, what we have is, who I think the preacher is, is Solomon, telling us what did he do? What did he seek after? What did he chase after that he thought would bring him this pleasure, this joy, this satisfaction? Because I think often we find ourselves at least in one of these things. You may not find yourself as Solomon was in all of them. And likely because you don't have the capability to find yourself in all of them. But if you could, you most certainly would try to have all of them. But oftentimes we find ourselves trying to get one or the other. And that becomes our satisfaction rather than God Himself. So let's read this. Chapter 2 We'll read verses 1 through 11. He says, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, It is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under the heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and, and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold 
and the treasure of kings and provinces, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So what does Solomon do here? He goes after everything. Anything and everything that he could have or would desire, he goes after. He goes after wine, alcohol. He goes after fornication, women, concubines. He goes after business and money and possessions. And brethren, these are the things that often become distractions for us. These are the same things that not only Solomon in his day, but Christians now are being bombarded with constantly. And I'm telling you right now, you live in this country, you, these things are coming at you with a constant force. You can't get away from them. And all the more difficult it is to make that battle. But ask yourself, are there some of these things which, if you were to look yourself honestly, to say to yourself, no, I find no pleasure in any of that, but in God alone. Rather than if you were pressed, could you honestly answer that none of that is your satisfaction? Because I will tell you right now, there are, there are things in here that I think even as I've prayed through and thought through this, that I know some of you to be in many of these categories. When we look at some of these, uh, I can remember for myself times when my satisfaction was grounded in the next night of sin the next drink, the next relationship. It was almost as though I was, I was doing whatever sin I was in and I couldn't wait until the next one. I wasn't even satisfied in doing what I was doing. I just wanted the next one too. You see, that's what it is, brethren. It's folly to live like that. To just chase after any deed of the flesh that you think will satisfy. And it's there for a moment, but then it's gone. And you know this. If you're satisfied in things like these, they're only satisfying for a moment. And then you find yourself empty. You have nothing left. There's no joy. There's no contentment. There's no satisfaction. And that's why you continue to chase it. It doesn't end. There's not even an end in sight. How could you possibly be satisfied? You, you have to have more. He talks about in the previous chapter and a little more later in the next one, even, even how he felt 
at a point when, when wisdom and knowledge were the same thing. And he says, if you look back right before that, chapter 1, verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And you, you got to realize what Solomon is recognizing is that even in this, the chasing after wisdom and knowledge and prominence, he realized that, as many have said, the more he learned, the more he recognized he didn't know. And, and it causes this strife, this grief, as though you're looking out and you're realizing there's no end in sight. The race just goes on and I will never be satisfied with what's out there. And it is foolish, brethren, absolutely foolish, especially when you have what we have in the gospel, Jesus Christ in all of His goodness and majesty and greatness laid against these foolish things. And I will tell you, there will be many who will stand on the day of judgment and they had Christ laid out to them. And He was laid out in His fullness to say, Take Him! He will be of greater value to you. And there will be many that will have said, No, I want this. I want my sin. I want these foolish little trinkets that seem to me more valuable than Christ. But undoubtedly there are some that maybe think themselves not so low as to chase the bottle or to chase women or men as others do or even maybe as they once did. But they do chase something else. They chase a dollar, they chase profession, they chase business, they chase growth, and not godly growth. They chase personal growth in, in, their, own, in their own ability to do great things. You see, he says this, I made great works, verse 4. I built houses, I planted vineyards for myself, I had pools, I bought slaves, I gathered for myself silver and gold, I had great possessions. I'm not reading these in order, I'm just looking at them. He had treasure of kings, he had singers, both men and women, all of this. He had all these great things. And undoubtedly, probably many have made a shift of just gross, open, wicked sin of chasing sexual desires and chasing a bottle or some drug high. And what do they do? They come right over here and they make it a little more clean. And they're no longer chasing that kind of thing, but they're not satisfied in Christ. And so they must be satisfied in something else. And we have to be careful here, brethren. Because again, this is held out. This is held out. You can have the possessions. You can have the stuff. You just got to work really hard. And there it is. It's, it's right on the table. The houses, the cars, the prominence, the, 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 the big corner office, the big money. And I will tell you right now, the scripture is not unclear about this. Jesus Christ shows up and he says, what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will it profit you if you gain everything in the world 
and let and yet lose your soul. And maybe some of you say, well, I don't want to gain everything. I'm not, I'm not that selfish. I just want to gain a couple little things. How much more foolish for you? You don't even lose your soul by gaining the world. You lose your soul and you only gained a little bit. How much more foolish for you? Jesus says, what will it profit you? All of the possessions, all of the money. We get this dealt with all through Scripture. The Bible tells us the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's the root of it. When you look at evil in the world, it, money will be the root of a lot of it. And we often look at ourselves and we say, well, I don't love money. Brother, you got to have a, a much more rigid test than, than what you might think. It is very easy to love money. Very easy to love money. And it is very easy to love money more than youth love Christ. Because, because as even as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, the, the preacher comes later and he says, well, money gains all things. And he, and he says that because the reality is, money is what is necessary for us to live and eat and, and all the things that we have in our life. And so it is easy to make money your God, that you live by it and you die by it. Brethren, what the Scripture would have us to recognize is that in the end, if we would be satisfied in Christ, it would matter not whether you have much or whether you have little. Because you know what the preacher says later on? He says, there is something that is evil. And often when he says evil, what he's, what he's recognizing is, as I look out in the world and I'm using my wisdom and I'm seeing the vanity and, and the fleetingness of the world, there are things that happen that make me cringe. And you know what one of the things he says is? Someone could gain and, and work and toil and have this big old pile of possessions and this big old pile of money and then they die and who's it go to? Someone else. And you know what they might do to it? Throw it right down the drain. And so what is it then? It's gone in a minute. Brethren, it doesn't last. Everything that is yours now and everything that is yours when you die is going to be somebody else's when you die. It doesn't remain yours. And even the world recognizes that. You get the bumper sticker that says, that, I don't know, something about, I'm not going to have uh, all my stuff traveling behind this hearse or whatever it is that they talk about. That you can't take all this stuff with you. And the lost world recognizes that. And yet we find Christians that are building bigger and bigger storehouses for all their treasure on earth, and it's going to be burned away, brethren. It's going to go away like that. You die and it goes to somebody else. And who knows what they're going to do with it. The preacher says that maybe the one who doesn't know God works and toils and leaves all his possessions and then it goes to someone who uses it all for God. So then how foolish it was for that guy. He hated God and the next guy uses it all for God. But how much more the other way too. You can have someone who builds this big giant empire. You get these big giant mega churches, billions of dollars. And then they crumble, and then what? Money goes to something else. Not to the Lord. It's, brethren, it doesn't last. It doesn't remain. And so to set our hope on this is foolishness. Just like 
When you walk outside on that cold day, you breathe and it's that vapor's there. But if you were to try to grab a hold of that and hold yourself steady by it, you would be a fool. It'll dissolve in your hands in a second and you'd go crashing to the ground. And it's the same way with all of this. All of these things that we would seek to put our hope on are of no value to us because they will not remain. They will not last. And so what then is... If that's a counterfeit, then there has to be an authentic, right? There has to be something that's genuine. So, turn with me. We read this earlier. 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, we're going to read verses 3 through 8 again, or 3 through 9. Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now listen to what he says. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, brethren, you see it in Ecclesiastes, he says, this, this person won't remember much of the toil and the strife and the contention and the, and the heartache of the life that he has had because God keeps him occupied. There's something that needs to keep us occupied. Something, if you will, that needs to keep us distracted from all of that. And here it is. God is our distraction. Jesus Christ is our distraction. Though you haven't seen Him, you love Him. And though you even still now don't see Him, you believe in Him, and you rejoice. You rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. There is something in God that causes, that should, maybe it doesn't, but it should cause us to rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. Because there is something in Him, brethren, that is not found in anything else. Something sustainable, something of infinite value that nothing else can offer you. And because of who He is, and because of His greatness and His majesty and His worth, 
We sang that song today out at, at First Baptist, and I never even heard it before, but just kept asking, is He worthy? Is He worthy? Is He worthy? And every time the, the congregation goes, He is. <laughs> and and it, it's just, it's such a great reality for us to be reminded of. Brethren, that God is worthy. That Jesus Christ is worthy of our worship. Not these other things. They're of no value to us. God must be our distraction from that. Don't be distracted by the garbage. Be distracted by God, where the garbage is worth nothing to you. What we need is this. Matthew chapter 13. Maybe you have read these before, but if we want to understand what it really looks like for somebody to grab a hold of how glorious this reality is, Jesus sums it up for us in two ways. He says in Matthew 13, starting in verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. You see the satisfaction that this person has. He goes and he finds a treasure. And it is so satisfying to him. It is of such great worth that he doesn't just sell all that he has so that he can have this thing of better worth. It says in his joy, he didn't even want all the other stuff that he had. He wanted to get rid of that so that he could have this field. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And the same with the other one. He's searching for fine pearls and then he finds one. He doesn't find a bunch of fine pearls. He finds one pearl. And he gets rid of everything he has for one pearl, brethren. And you might say, that is insane. Who does that? Who goes and goes walking around over here and they find a, a dirt lot with something in it and they sell every single thing they have to buy that dirt lot? Well, obviously someone who thinks that whatever's in that lot is worth way more than all the other stuff I have. And that's what this is, brother. And that's what it is to see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, to see Christ himself as the king of that kingdom as worth more than everything else. You know, it was Jesus that said, whoever will not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. 
Not whoever does not renounce all that he has will have a difficult time being my disciple. He says, if you don't do it, you are not welcome to be my disciple. Why does he say that? Does he say that because he wants you begrudgingly saying, oh, fine, I won't have that. I'll just have Christ instead. No, he wants that because he knows that those who would rather get rid of everything to have Christ, those are the people he wants to follow him. He wants those that love Him. And maybe you, re, you, you can recall this. There's a, a story, well, not a story, but a, a law in the Old Testament. There were these laws that were given for the, really, the care of the slaves that the Israelites had. God gave these different laws to oversee because, honestly, if God didn't give these laws in the care of these slaves, who knows? I mean, Israel went and started slaughtering their children. If God didn't intervene in some form to give these laws for this nation, who knows what sort of wickedness they would have involved themselves in. But God gave these different laws. And, and one, of the, one of them was that the law, all of the slaves were meant to be released at, at a certain point. But there was a law given. If a slave desired to remain with his master for the rest of his life, and didn't want to go anywhere, he could do that. And you might say, well, what in the world is that about? Who wants to do that? Well, obviously, the slave that thinks his master is a great master, and he doesn't want to leave him. So there's a law there that says, if the slave says, I love my master, and I don't want to go out, basically what he was supposed to do is take the slave, bring him to the judges of the people of Israel and before God, and basically to pierce his ear through. And that was the sign that this slave was to be a slave of that master forever. And that was a willing thing. The master can't take his slave and go, you're mine forever, and poke his ear through. It didn't work like that. But if the slave said, I don't want to go anywhere, why would I leave my master? He is, to me, of great worth. He cares for me. He cares for my wife and my children. Why would I leave him? Why would I abandon him? And brethren, that's a picture for us. That ought to be for us how it should be for us to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ does not want people who he has to jam their ear through. He wants people that are going to come and say, I'm not leaving this master. I'm yours forever who's going to bring the all themselves and say, Master, I'm yours forever. I don't want to go anywhere. That's what Jesus is looking for. And brethren, it's, He's worth that. That's what I'm trying to get to you. That's what I've been wrestling with the last couple of days. How do I say that? How do I even comprehend or how do I even live in such a way? How do I even speak to them about the fact that you can in fact be Totally satisfied in Jesus Christ. Totally satisfied in Jesus Christ. And there's people that, that I've met over the years, did a lot of street ministry. And I met some of these people, and I'm not saying all of them were, were great or perfect or biblical, but a lot of these people did not have anything. Nothing. And a lot of them would tell me, I don't need anything. I just, I got God in my Bible. And look, I, I don't know. A, a lot of them, I think, were doing some of that out of the flesh because they felt they needed to. And a, and a lot of them, I think, did that because they just didn't have any other option. 
But there are a few of them that I think recognized that it wasn't about money. It wasn't about living a great life. It wasn't about being satisfied in possessions or, or a wife or a house or anything. But it's about being satisfied in Jesus Christ. And there was real satisfaction there. And that's what I want us to see, brethren. And the last verse I'd have you to look at is the other one we read. Psalm chapter 16. As I read this again, folks, it's important that you would ask yourself if this is the reality for your life. Now, undoubtedly, for some, it may not be the complete reality of your life, but you would desire it to be. You, you do love the Lord, and you want this to be true of you, and you, like me, wrestle day in and day out to make it true daily. But there are some who this is not true about. And I would have you to seriously consider this. Psalm 16, verses 5 through 11. The Lord. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. He's my portion. You hold my lot. Remember, it said over there in Ecclesiastes that one of the things that he says that needs to happen is that this individual needs to be satisfied that God has given him his lot. Whatever it is that he has, God has given it to him. And to be dissatisfied in that is to be dissatisfied that God has given you something that you deserve more than what God has given you. He says, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You saw that in 1 Peter. What is the inheritance, brethren? The inheritance is your salvation in Christ. That's what you've been given. That's, an that's a beautiful inheritance. When the Lord is your chosen portion, when He is the greatest thing for you, you can say, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And look at this, verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. These are real things, brethren. He is saying, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices rejoices. Those aren't just words. 
Because oftentimes I think we can say this. We recognize that the Bible says, oh, always be rejoicing. Paul says that. I've read that. I memorized that verse. And we go, oh, I'm always rejoicing. But we're not always rejoicing. It's not just words. There is a real sense in the heart, in the core of a person's being that we need to have rejoicing. Because you have something that they cannot take away from you. In all of the persecution, in our brothers and sisters that sit in prisons, they can take whatever they want. I remember watching uh, Tortured for Christ. And he says in there that he went to one prison. Uh, I don't know if it was necessarily near the end of his time of persecution, but it's near the end of the movie, so I assume maybe they link up. But... But he says that they transferred him to this prison where there were a number of other uh, prisoners in there that were Christians. And he says, we, we made a deal with the guards. We'd preach. They'd beat us. Everybody was happy. <laughs> and, and I'm going to tell you right now, we laugh at that and we think, man, that's really great. But sit for a minute and think about that. How is it really possible that you could... You could be sitting in a cell doing this kind of thing. Obviously not in this capacity, but if you just sit down with someone, you're having a conversation, you're talking about God and what He's done and the Bible, and then someone comes in and grabs you, rips you out of that cell with, with, with uh, now I'm blanking on his name, Richard Wormbrandt. With him, they beat his feet so bad that the man could never walk again normal. Never. They grab you out of that cell and they beat your feet till you cannot even walk into your own cell again. They drag you in and they throw you on the ground. And yet somehow you can sit back up and rejoice in your spirit in God Almighty. That is not normal, brethren. That is not normal. I don't care what the world says. They can't do that. They can't do that. They can't produce that kind of thing. Because it's supernatural. God puts rejoicing in the heart of a Christian. And they can't remove that. And that's why they cringe their teeth at that. They don't want you to have that. Why are you happy? Why are you praying? Why are you singing? You see, Paul, he's in the prison, and he's got his feet in the stocks, and he's singing hymns. You imagine how mad these, these Roman guards would have been to see this guy? What are you doing? Stop singing. You should not be happy. But there he is. My heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. It's not just words, brethren. It's not just facts in the head. I'm supposed to be rejoicing right now, so I'm going to be happy. There's real gladness. There's real rejoicing that we need to have. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. Listen to this. In 
your presence. There is fullness of joy. Fullness. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Listen, we have a weird idea in our world about what heaven is. And I don't know where it came from. I don't really care where it came from. But let me lay out to you what the Bible says about what is heaven. In the garden, you had God's perfect presence with Adam and Eve. And what happened? They sinned and everything got destroyed. God's presence, the people are cast out. And then what? They don't any longer walk with God in God's presence constantly. There's no more of that. God comes later on in the story to the Israelites. He says, I'll dwell in the midst here. I'm going to dwell in the holy of holies, but not, not everywhere, just right here. And I'll put, this, I'll put this pillar of fire and this pillar of smoke so that you can see that I'm dwelling here with you. But, but it wasn't the same. God's presence was, they did not dwell in God's presence constantly. And then you come into the New Testament, what do you see? God's made a new covenant. He's going to enter into His people. He's going to give them a new heart. And now God dwells in His people. But there's still something yet to be fully consummated. It's not yet completed. And at the end, what happens is you don't die and go to some floaty place in a cloud with babies with harps flying around. What happens is God comes and totally redeems His world and His creation and He dwells with His people. You don't, it's not as though you die and then it's just like, whoop, there you go over there to the, to the weird place that nobody really knows about and you just float around. God comes in and totally redeems His creation and makes it new and He dwells in their midst. God is there. That's the joy. Now, if you ask yourself, and, and, and I've, I've heard Piper bring this up, that if, if you die and you go to heaven and everybody's there, your family's there, your friends are there, everything is just great, you show up and there's a big old party, but Jesus Christ is not there, would you go there? Do you still want to go there? Because the Bible says that the joy is not that. The joy is God. If God is not there, what's the purpose of going there? You see, He says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. That's where it is. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Folks, as I said, dealing with that over the last week, undoubtedly I recognize the struggle and the difficulty of what it is to do that. To really have it be said of my life that my joy and my pleasure and my satisfaction are in God. They're not in other things. That I'd be able to say, in your presence there is fullness of joy. 
and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's no small thing to say that. And the reality is, that is an impossible thing to say unless God has done a miraculous work in your heart. You will not say that unless God has done that. And maybe you sit here and you say, I don't know about that. Maybe you'd be fearful to say it. Maybe you wouldn't want anybody to know that. Maybe you don't even want your own self to know that. Maybe you'd be afraid to even make that known to your own heart. Certainly you would probably be afraid to make that known to God Himself, but He knows. He knows whether or not you truly believe that at His right hand there are pleasures forevermore, or whether you believe that outside of His presence there are pleasures forevermore. He knows that. Whether you would want to say that or not, He already knows that. And so all I can say is this. Those of you who do not yet know that in any capacity, folks, Jesus Christ is above all things infinitely worthy. He is glorious. Listen, th this, is, this is Jesus Christ is one who dwelled in eternity with God the Father Almighty and the Spirit in perfect unison and harmony and completion and love. And He comes and, and He takes on a human body and He surrounds Himself with things that, that never the Son of God had surrounded Himself with. Such wickedness and sin, and He did it to redeem His people, to die for them. And He offers His blood. He says, anyone who is heavy burdened, come to Me and I will give you rest. Open. Anyone. If you're burdened, come to Me. You can have rest. It's open. The, the offer is open. And so how much worth is Jesus Christ? Is He to you a great treasure? Remember, He says, with joy, this person went and they sold all that they had to buy this field? Would you be willing to sell all that you have to buy Jesus Christ? And actually do it. Not just say you would do it, but actually do it. Jesus says, whoever will not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. You actually have to do it. You actually have to come to Jesus Christ and actually renounce everything. You actually have to say, of no value, Jesus Christ is everything to me. That is actually what he calls you to do. But he is worth doing that. It's not as though you would, you would do that and then find out after you did it that you got duped. You wouldn't have Jesus Christ and find out afterward that what you got sold was a bad deal. I can promise you that what you would find in the end is that you got something that you did not deserve. You sold all that you had and you thought it was a value, but at the end you would find out, I should have sold a lot. He should have commanded a lot more of me than just that than just getting rid of all that I have. Because He is of infinite value, brethren. Let's pray.